Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Genesis. Just by way of review here quickly, remember in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, we really have the full account of creation. In Genesis 1, we have more of the sequential uh, six days of creation and the seventh day of rest. We make our way into chapter 2 and we sort of uh, uh, zoom in a little bit on the creation account of man and woman uh, and some other details around that, get more detail on how it is that God created us, how he created created Adam, how he formed Adam from the uh, dust of the earth, how he formed Eve from the rib of Adam. And, and so it's more detail that we get there in chapter 2. And, and at the end of chapter 2, in verses 21 through the end of the chapter, we read this. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so this is that moment where after God had brought before Adam, not because God didn't know, God had rightly said, It's not good that man should be alone. I shall make him a helper suitable for him. But it's not that God thought, well, maybe there will be one amongst the animals, but rather I'm going to go, Adam, and bring the various animals that I've created before you so that you can understand and see that though there are similarities, there is not one amongst creation that is suitable for you. I want you to understand when I create woman how special she is, how perfect she is, how well suited she is for you, Adam. And when he does that, and Adam knows, and we don't know exactly how he knows other than I'm of the opinion that he can sense that something happened to his body, that God did something, that he has this awareness. And of course, Adam is perfect. I mean, he has a a perfect mind. He's intelligent. He's, we could say he was a genius. And here now he's aware of what God has done. And it's this moment where he says, yes, this is it. This is woman. This is my wife. This is perfect, Lord. All that other stuff. I don't know why you bother bringing a giraffe by Okay, because that just, you know, that that was a cool animal, but that just wasn't suitable for me. But this, yes, Lord, this makes sense, right? And so then we see this this passage of scripture that really indicates here that this is the this is the first marriage, this is the first wedding, and and it, and, and God declares, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And it is one flesh in every in every sense. Physically and spiritually and emotionally, there is a bond that happens here. And it says in verse 25, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. And I want to revisit this verse here this evening because this captures the purity and the perfection of God's original creation. This verse is not to be overlooked because for us who have our entire lives in the history that we know going back to the creation account is a history that has been marred by sin. And so it's not for us to overlook this moment here where God's creation was as it was intended to be. Here in this moment, creation was complete. Adam, man, had received the helper or the helpmeet that was suitable for him in Eve, woman. 
And here's this perfect union, the first marriage, this relationship and all of creation as God had intended it to be. This was paradise. And here in these moments between this time and the fall, there was no sin, there was no shame, there was no sickness, there was no disease, there was no racism, there were no politics, there was not in Adam or Eve either a bend towards sin. They had the capacity to sin and that they were created as free moral agents, but within them was no natural sin, no inherited sin. What would be required was an outside force that would persuade man to sin. And that's what we see in chapter 3. Man's fall into sin and its effect or its consequences upon humanity that we experience still today. You know, for many of us, when we look around at the world today and we look at our culture today, we find ourselves, especially right now in this year, we find ourselves, many of us probably going, Lord, how bad can it get? We are aware more and more and more of the effects of sin on our world. And as we look back on this passage of Scripture, we go, there was a time when things were as they were intended to be. That should also cause us then to look forward and to say, Lord, you promise that there will be a time again where it is like this. In fact, not just like this, but even better. This is the way God intended it to be. And this is part of why he determined to save us, to restore this relationship that sin had disrupted. And that's really what we're going to consider tonight. In some respects, tonight might be somewhat of an imbalanced message because we'll only make it to that point when man falls into sin. And next week then we'll pick back up in the middle of the chapter and we'll look at the consequences of sin as it comes from God, as he literally doles out consequences because of sin. And then we'll look at how his plan for reconciliation really begins to unfold. But we know that. We know that that's what God is doing. As believers, we know that that's what's already been accomplished. But tonight, and I think it's important for us to consider a little bit what it really means to sin and the effects of that and really about the importance and we see this here in chapter 3 of confession and repentance because that's what God looks for here immediately as man sins and so we then read in in chapter 3 in verse 1 now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made and he said to the woman has God indeed said You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, apparently the serpent was a deceptive animal or even an attractive animal, depending on the definition you use for cunning. Uh, It certainly could be the case that he was both. He was attractive in this form. Um, You know, many of you may not look at snakes and think, oh, those are really cool. But if you look at reptiles in creation today, there's some pretty cool ones that are colorful and that are pretty amazing to look at. We don't know what what exactly uh, this serpent looked like, but it's likely the case that there was an aspect of, of, of attractiveness, of appeal, Uh, and that he was deceptive. Revelation 12 tells us that this was Satan or the devil. That it was Satan himself inhabiting the serpent, which we know that Satan and the demons can do. This was a, a possession of an animal, if you will. And here now it's coming to Eve. Now why was Eve not alarmed by a talking snake, many people wonder. 
You're thinking, oh, I'm just sitting here by maybe uh, a river and I'm looking at the trees and all of a sudden a snake starts talking to me and that'd be kind of weird. Why wasn't Eve kind of freaked out? And we don't know for sure. It could be that this was quite early on and she just had not had much exposure to the animals. And so to her, she'd talked with God, she'd talked with Adam, and here now is an animal talking and, and maybe it's just, well, that doesn't strike her as odd. But I'm of the opinion that a little bit of time had gone by here. Probably not much time, but enough time where she would have had exposure to some of the animals. Why do I think that? Well, for Satan to be here deceiving her in this moment means that he had fallen. We can read about that in Ezekiel in chapter 28, verses 13 through 19. I won't go there for the sake of time tonight, but if you're taking notes, write down Ezekiel 28, 13 through 19. The prophet there actually speaking first of a king, but then likening that king to Satan in his fall deals there in that chapter with what happens with Satan, with Lucifer, and his pride and his desire to be like God falls into sin. And so this has happened at this point right and angels are created angels are created beings they're towards the beginning of creation and so for satan to have fallen and now to be in rebellion and seeking to lead others into rebellion probably a little bit of time has gone by and toward that end i'm of the opinion that eve had probably interacted with some of the animals at this point and so uh, i think like many do that perhaps uh animals uh some of them if not all of them had the ability to talk at this particular time we see elsewhere in scripture most notably with balaam that uh, there's an animal that has the ability to talk and in that passage of scripture there it doesn't just say that god uh sort of supernaturally gave him the ability to talk but opened his vocal cords there's consequences. There's a result of the fall. And so it's, it's absolutely possible that animals could have communicated at this time. And a lot of people think that's, that's uh, kind of crazy, right? Even, even that the, the serpent here, because as part of the curse, as we'll see later on, is cursed to be on the ground and eating the dust, that it's likely that even the serpent was an upright animal at this particular point. And so uh, if you're connecting all these things in your own imagination, you could maybe consider something like the, the Geico gecko right? Walking around and talking, but a little less friendly, maybe. I don't know. And people are like, well, that's crazy. How could an animal talk? And I think, you talk, and that doesn't seem to astound you, right? I mean, so let's think about this. In Here in paradise, the way that God, and aren't there times maybe when you've had a really close, if I could use that word, relationship with a pet, with a dog, and sometimes you're just looking at each other, and you're like, this dog is trying to tell me something right now, right? And then what do you do? You don't talk to your pets, do you? Oh, you guys are crazy. You talk to your pets, don't you? Because there's communication that's happening. So it shouldn't be that far-fetched, no pun intended, for us to really think about animals communicating. Okay, some people just got that. So that's a big part of what's happening. I mean, the other night, my dog, he's scratching at the bowl, right? The bowl was empty. He needed water. He's like, hey, people, I need water. Can't do this without you. You know, and we're like, oh, here, here we go. And he's, thank you. So anyhow, I digress. We don't need to be dogmatic about this part, right? These are the things that we can get sort of sucked into and be like, well, how did this happen? And why wasn't he freaked out? And so on and so forth. What's important for us to understand here is that Satan, the deceiver, comes to Eve here and he serves as the external force that's leading 
This person who has not yet sinned into sin. And that's what Satan does. Now don't take Satan for a fool. He exploits us. He finds where we are weak and he attacks. It's believed that Eve is alone in this moment. No doubt, listen, and I'll touch on this in a couple of different ways here. Adam is complicit in sin, okay? Let me just state that very clearly on the front end and we'll deal with that a little bit more. He's not off the hook. Scripture says so in Romans 5, 12. Sin entered through one man. But Eve maybe is in a vulnerable position here without the covering of her husband. And dealing directly with Satan here, she's not dealing with some demon. And that's one of the things we have to understand sometimes about spiritual warfare. A lot of times people think they're going through it or they're dealing with something and they think, oh, Satan's out to get me. That's a true statement. Satan's out to get you. He wants you to go down, okay? But Satan, differently than God, is not omnipotent, omnipresent, or omniscient. He doesn't know all things. He's not in all places and he's not all powerful. So don't give Satan more credit than what he's due. But at the same time, be careful because sometimes you may just come up face to face with him. And rest assured, he is a formidable foe and more powerful than a demon who may come and mess with your life. And so we have to understand here that Eve's dealing with the deceiver, Satan himself. Now what does Satan do? We see here as he begins to talk with her that he begins to question God's word and to get Eve to question God's word word. It is the same old tactic. What Satan has been doing from the very beginning of time is exactly what he still does today and does in our own lives. Henry Morris writes this, if one were to study each situation closely enough, he will find that sin always begins by questioning either the word of God or the goodness of God or both. If you really stop and think about the times in which you have sinned in your life, the times when sin seems to get a hold of you, if you really consider it, what Henry Morris posits here is that if you go to the very beginning, what is absolutely going to be present there is that you begin to question the word of God or the degree to which God actually loves you. Which in this case could absolutely be both as he not only questions God's word but perhaps his love and his goodness in not affording Eve all of the supposed resources thereby holding something back. This is what he's beginning to try and convince Eve of is that God's not giving you something. God must not want you to know about this. Or this must actually be pretty good. God just wants to withhold it from you. And the woman said to the serpent in verse 2, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now right away here, we see that Satan is effective in sort of distorting uh, Eve's perspective here. Because what happens here that we see is that Eve begins to change God's word. God had said that you may freely eat but one. Translation, it's all yours. Just don't eat that one. She doesn't phrase it that way, does she? She puts on it a little more restriction. What she does is she takes God's word and she subtracts from it, and then she adds to it also by stating that he says you cannot touch it, which based off of the scripture that we have, God did not say that. 
So perhaps for Eve to justify the sin that was already beginning to take root in her heart, she adds and subtracts in line with her developing resentment towards God. Ever done that before? Ever begun to twist things and shape things a little bit to suit the way that you're feeling, to give yourself a pass, if you will, to engage in something that you ultimately know God has said, don't do that. And we've got to remember here, go back to our teachings in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Adding to God's word leads to legalism. Whenever we add to God's word, we, it creates legalism. And legalism leads to rebellion. Subtracting from his word leads to liberalism, which again leads to rebellion. Both of those circumstances. Either you create things and you add to God's word such that people want to get away from it because it's created legalism and it's not what God intended, or we get so loose with it that we begin to do all the things that we shouldn't do because we've just sort of erased everything from it. And so what she does here, she begins to question God's word, and then she questions whether perhaps God is withholding something from her, and she allows Satan to begin to influence her. This is a pattern for each of our lives as well. These are the things, if we're, if we're honest and we really consider these things, we find that we do this in our own lives as well, whether adding to Scripture, subtracting from Scripture, in order to suit ourselves. Now in verse 4 we read, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so you see what Satan does here is he goes from suggesting to declaring that God is a liar. From changing his word to outright denying it. And in doing this, he successfully leads Eve to desire the same thing that Satan himself pursued and is still pursuing today and what each of us ultimately pursues in our own disobedience towards God, and that is to be our own gods. To no longer bring ourselves under the authority of God and His Word, but instead to make us that, or to position ourselves there. We may not do that outright, knowingly saying, I'm making myself into a God. We may not use those words, but the fact is, is there is only one throne in your heart. And either Jesus is sitting on that throne, or you are, and you're going after the things that you want to go after. Made in His image, we seek to make ourselves the image, and our culture feeds this today, to then create gods in our own image and in our own likeness. We make it about us, and after the pattern of Adam and Eve, we pursue sin. This is the pattern. It's the same old pattern. There's nothing new Solomon said it himself, there's nothing new under the sun. It's the same old thing over and over and over again. So then, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So let's review here again. How did sin and or Satan get her? She, one, she doubted God's word and pride entered in. She doubted God's word, and pride entered in. And then her sin began to look good. It began to appeal to her. It was pleasant to the eyes. And she desired what she had convinced herself that it could do for her. 
Oh, it can make me wise. She's now convinced herself of that. Now I'm going to pursue it, right? As we consider these types of things, again, not to be redundant here, but what we must recognize is this is the same pattern that plays out still today. In 1 John 2.16, 1 John 2.16, it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Look at the things that John mentions there. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. What happened with Eve? She doubted God's word. Pride entered in. Her flesh began to desire it. Her eyes began to see it. And she goes. Now consider how Jesus, who by the way, sin entered, Romans 12, 5, sin entered through one man, Adam. What was the solution to that? Through Jesus, right? Forgiveness comes and reconciliation. But in order for that to happen, and you see, this is why we have to understand, and we've talked a good bit about this lately, that this is the grand narrative of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, it all fits together. It is the narrative of God's plan of salvation. And so, for forgiveness to come, for reconciliation to truly happen, and Hebrews tells us this, that we had to have a Savior who was in all ways tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now we see there in Genesis how sin enters in. Well, what happens with Jesus? After his baptism, he's immediately sent where? Out into the desert to be tempted by the devil. The devil, the same one that was tempting Eve here in the garden. How does the devil tempt Jesus? We read it in Matthew chapter 4. You see it in Luke as well. He was tempted with his physical appetite. He was tempted with his emotions and with power, and he was tempted with pride. The same things, the same tactics. I can do this for you. Satan comes to Jesus and he begins to try and distort God's word. He begins to appeal to his flesh, to his emotions, to his pride, to his desires. But of course, praise God as we read in Hebrews and as we know based off of the account of Scripture that Jesus did not sin. He, combat, he combated it, right? He did battle with the devil there. And how did he do it? The word of God. The word of God. Because we know that Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. Over and over and over again, he says, the word of God says this. That is how we defend ourselves against the attacks of the enemy. The word of God, which is exactly what Eve discounted and distorted. And it's what we do too, Christian. You know, unbelievers, here's the thing. Unbelievers, people who do not believe in Jesus, people who don't know anything really about Jesus, don't know anything about the Word of God, though they still have a conscience because they're created by God, the fact is they don't really think about the Word. And they're engaging in sin. They're not thinking, well, this is a violation of Scripture. That's just crazy. You don't think that way. But when Christians sin, your conscience bears witness. And you begin to do some of these same things. Well, it really doesn't, it really doesn't mean that, does it? This really won't happen. I won't really die. And what begins to happen is that the desire of your flesh overwhelms the conviction of your heart. And in some cases for believers, they don't maybe know the word very well. And while ignorance is not a pass, sadly they're not able to really pick up the sword and do battle with it. Because as Ephesians tells us, we are to be daily putting on our armor as well. Because when we go out there into the world, we need to be ready is there are spiritual powers of darkness waging war in the heavenlies, ways in which the enemy desires to attack us, and we have got to put on our armor. We've got to be ready to go. But if we're not spending time in here and we're not spending time in prayer, we won't be ready. 
Now here's what happens next in the latter part of verse 6 as we read that she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Now Eve here apparently uh, takes more of the fruit. She's now eaten herself and she gives to Adam. Now some believe here in this verse, and it could be right, some believe that this suggests that in fact Adam was there with her. And, and again, he could be. We don't know for sure. Certainly, if he was there with her, it makes him even more complicit as it appears that he just idly stood by doing absolutely nothing as Eve is tempted to sin and indulges it. But others think that he was not there and that uh, not there directly with her and that Eve brought it to him. I'm of the opinion that he was not present physically with her. And I think that helps us to see a few different things, one of which is a marriage principle, that the enemy often attacks the individual. And within that, then, the importance of the union and the importance of accountability and the importance of presence. And, and it's not to suggest by any means that, that a husband and or a wife is entirely responsible for the other in terms of just, we gotta, I got to just stay with you every moment of every day, of every, every minute. But there is a principle, and there is or maybe less about a principle and more about understanding that the enemy attacks when we're weak, when we're vulnerable. And so understanding what that looks like and having boundaries and having plans and having things established, knowing that. Furthermore, as Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2.14, 1 Timothy 2.14, he says this, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And so while this is not explicitly clear, this leads me to believe that Eve's sin was separate in some way. And had Adam been present, I don't see how there could be much difference between them. I don't know how Paul could, could sort of draw this distinction had Adam been right there and involved the entire time. Now, go back to my earlier statement, Adam is not off the hook. Let's understand that clearly. I want to stress this. Adam is complicit, and there is absolutely a failure of leadership on his part. We don't know what was going down at this particular time. We don't know exactly what he was doing, why he wasn't there. But there is a failure of leadership on his part that I, that I think also is a principle in marriage. Furthermore, he partakes. She brings him this fruit, and he eats of it. And at this point, she's eaten, so what does she say to him? Is she just being deceptive? Is she just sort of sneaking it in here? I don't think that's the case. I think she comes to him and she explains to him, here's what I did. The serpent was talking to me, told me this. I tried it. I'm good. I'm not dead. And I think you should try it too. So he's, 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 he's influenced. Again, maybe not maliciously on her part. Uh, maybe it goes down that way. Or uh, some have suggested also that he's just weak in this moment and, and unwilling to just sort of stand and to say, you're wrong, you shouldn't have done that, and I'm not going to do it. No matter how you, how you try and figure this out, the fact is, especially because Paul says that Adam was not deceived, it means that he understood, he knew something about this. He knew more so than Eve the consequences the fact that the enemy was lying, yet he engaged anyway, which is what we call willful disobedience. Eve was deceived. She was led astray. Adam knew and he did it anyways. And because of this, sin and death in this world are attributed to him. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15.22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And so we also see the importance there of the husband in the marital relationship. 
as the leader of his home and the one who is to uh, establish and maintain a standard. And in verse 7 we read, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. With the exception, perhaps, of the account of the crucifixion in Scripture, in my opinion, um, this is the other passage of Scripture that we ought to look to and say this is incredibly sad. It wasn't long before this that there they were together in a perfect relationship, naked and not ashamed, communicating with God, communing with God, and now because of sin entering in, it's all disrupted. And what they had done is they had believed the lie that they would be like God. And sin, though enticing and full of promise, never fulfills. You know, the sin that we engage in Though it's not the sin where it, we believe that, oh, I'll be, I'll be made wise and be like God. We convince ourselves of what it is going to do for us. That it's going to meet a need. That it's going to bring pleasure. That it's going to fix a situation. That it's going to uh, solve a problem. Whatever, whatever the case may be, we convince ourselves of what it is going to do. What it's going to promise us. Because remember, Satan is a deceiver. And even when we know in our heart of hearts that it's not going to do what it says that it's going to do, we allow our flesh to overwhelm us and we give into it. And it never ever fulfills and sadly so many of us have been in that pattern of sin where we even recognize that we know that the promise of that sin is only going to be temporary and for them they believed this promise that they were going to become divine that they would experience divinity and instead of that they now experience shame and that is most often the case, the result of our own sin as well, is that shame comes. And, and in their shame, they, like all those who have sinned, attempt to cover it up. We attempt to cover it and to cover our shame. Yet as we all know, our attempts to cover our own sin is itself an act of self-righteousness, that we can do it. And in our own lives as well, it's almost literally like Adam and Eve where with wilted leaves we seek to cover our nakedness. And it's insufficient, it's crude, and it's completely ineffective. Yet sometimes we even convince ourselves that it's good, it's okay, I'm covered. Some are even still attempting to go about in their coverings of fig leaves pretending as though they're clothed, pretending as though they're okay. We have to see here the picture that Scripture gives us. Imagine these two individuals who not long before this, maybe it was a matter of weeks, maybe it was a matter of days, were standing there in all their glory of having just been created by God, standing there in a perfect relationship with one another, no shame, God in their presence, they in the presence of God, and now picture them hiding in bushes, shivering, scared, attempting to cover themselves, and does that not relate to you when you have found yourself in your own sin? And what happens? Here comes God. They heard the sound of the Lord. Again, verse 8, of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now the amazing thing about this is this suggests that this is, this is routine. 
I mean, they were living in such a way where God was with them on a daily basis, walking there in the cool of the garden. This was almost as if they had a, a set-up time to meet. How incredible is that? I mean, let's think about this for a moment, right? Think of biblical history and the process that God's people have gone through in order to be in His presence. That at this moment, this was the last time that being in His presence was experienced in this way. Is shortly hereafter they'll be expelled from the garden. The consequences of sin will enter in. And along with that, the process of sacrifice. Because it was that necessary sacrifice to be made on a regular basis in order to atone for their sins so that they could be in a right relationship with God, but still not truly experiencing the presence that they once knew. And throughout Israel's history, then, God works in different ways in order to implement a process. But even throughout that time, whether it was in the tabernacle or the temple, there was only one. Only one. And only one time a year where they could even go into the space. Now, of course, we have Moses who has a very special relationship with God. That's incredible. And he uses Moses to communicate with his people. I mean, even after they've... Here it is, David, who wants to bring the, the, the ark. He wants to bring the ark back into Jerusalem, right? We have that account there where they go to, to move the ark. And, and in the process of moving the ark, which was, which was to be placed there in the Holy of Holies, it was the seat by which God's presence would, would descend upon there. And, and, and they didn't do it right. And a lot of people get bent out of shape when they read that passage of Scripture. But what it tells us is that God means what He says. And you've got to take His word seriously. Because there as they're moving the ark and it begins to fall off and a well-intentioned individual says, I don't want this thing to fall and he puts his hand on it and boom, he's dead. And eventually they're successful in getting it back into the temple and when they get it in the temple and they do things the right way and they do it God's way, the rushing of the wind comes in and they sense the presence of the Lord but even then, the regular people, they have to stand outside. They have to be in a distance from God. And so on and so on this goes, always desiring, always getting excited to be near God, but never quite getting there. And then comes a period of 400 years, they don't hear from God, they hear nothing from Him. And then comes a day where a man called John the Baptist looks out and he sees a man coming. And he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he baptizes him that day and the Spirit descends upon him and God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. My Son that I'm giving to you, He's going to willingly give His life for you. He's going to willingly go to the cross, die the death of a criminal, be tortured, beaten, crucified, and He'll die. But death won't keep Him. He'll overcome the grave. He'll raise again to newness of life. And when you believe in him, you'll have it too. And that veil will be torn to that place that you've not been able to go. And because of Jesus, you can know my presence again. And that same power that raised him from the dead, Christian, is in here. He's in you. And he came and he ministered and he said, it's time for me to go. If I don't go, that Holy Spirit won't come. That spirit that's within us. But he said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I may be, there you will be also. And there's that promise that we'll be with him again forever in his presence. And of course, that's a summary, but it goes all the way back to this, to that time when God, our Father, walked in the cool of the garden and said, I want to know them again in that way. I want them to know me in that way. I want to be with them. And their shame, they're just like us, or we like them, and we attempt to hide from God. Now, the, the fact that they were ashamed is to some degree good news. 
mean, nobody likes shame, but what it shows us here is there was a sign of hope that they would be repentant. And repentance is essential. And it's often missing today. And that's a deep, dark state for someone to be in when they're unwilling to repent. And so here they're trying to hide. They've attempted to cover themselves. But as Isaiah 64, 6 tells us, but we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousness, our righteousness is like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. That's our attempt at righteousness. It's filthy rags. Do you know what happens to a fig leaf as soon as you pick it? It begins to wilt. It does nothing to cover them. Nor do our efforts at righteousness, at self-righteousness, it doesn't cover us. Only the blood of Christ can cover us. Christian, any attempt at your own righteousness is as a filthy rag. Once again, it's crude and it's insufficient. And here then in verses 9 and 10, then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Do you think God didn't know where they were? Just like a parent who calls out to their kids who are in the pantry when they shouldn't be. Hey, where are you? I can hear the rustling. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This is the effects of sin. Adam, the pinnacle of God's creation here now is saying, I was afraid. At this point, paradise is lost. From no shame and a perfect relationship with God to now both relationships being severed. And this is what we experience with sin today, absent of the reconciliation that comes through Christ. But even then, still not knowing fully what it is that God has intended, which we look forward to that with great anticipation. And more than this account in Genesis, what about the accounts in your own life? Think about the sin in your own life. And it makes you feel shame, right? And it causes you to try and hide from God. And when we do this, what we do, when we try to hide from God, knowing that God knows absolutely where we are, what we do is we expose our sin. We declare, to, we declare to God, just like Adam here, I've sinned. And so we're foolish to think that somehow we can cover it. So it reinforces then the importance of confession and repentance. As he says in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? God knows the answers to all of these questions. And some people look at this and they say, see, that's, the, that's, that's God. He's just sort of in this I got you kind of mode. No, he's a good father. He's a good parent. He's asking questions that he knows are going to lead to a particular answer. And what this is, is an invitation for them to confess and repent. It's an encouragement to Adam and Eve to confess and repent. They can't stay hiding in the bushes. But we often convince ourselves that we can. They can't remain in shame in their nakedness, though we often attempt to. No, God asks the question and we must respond so that repentance can take place, followed then by reconciliation. Verse 12, this is a doozy, okay? Ladies, you can highlight this one. Then the man said, the woman, I think it should be said this way, the, the woman, the woman who you gave me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Wow, Adam. He does two things here. As far as Eve concerned, here comes the bus, right? She did not see that one coming. And then the audacity, not only does he say, hey, look at her, her, wasn't me. But what else does he say? You gave her to me. He blames his wife and he blames God. One fell swoop. <laughs> Remember, go back. 
God looking at Adam, it is not good <laughs> that this man should be alone. <laughs> right? And so we know this. I don't know what was worse. Adam hiding in the bushes from God or blaming his wife and God at the same time. And we don't know what happened. <laughs> we, what happens in this moment? <laughs> How God looks at Adam? I mean, there's nothing here. Okay, there's, just, there's silence as far as God and Adam are concerned here. We can only speculate. God looks to Eve. Verse 13. What is this you have done? Again, this isn't God going, oh, Adam, good point. Eve, <laughs> why'd you do this? If anything, this is God looking at Adam and saying, you failed. And looking to Eve now and saying, what, what happened? Again, an invitation to confession and repentance. And here the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, this is confession. There's not an embellishment here. She didn't add to this. She didn't lie. There doesn't seem to be any twisting here. She doesn't seem to say, well, Adam wasn't, Adam wasn't around. He was supposed to be taking care of me. So this is absolutely confession here, but I don't know about repentance. I can't say for sure what he was feeling or experiencing here beyond, of course, what Scripture says and that there was shame. But Adam takes no responsibility, and I wonder about Eve in this moment. The perfect relationship that they had known with each other and with God was now severed. The image that they had been created in is now marred. And if our behavior is anything like that of our parents here in the garden, I fear that the gravity of their behavior is as of yet lost on them. Now shortly here, and we again, don't have time for this today, we'll look at the initial consequences of sin and praise the Lord, we will see his plan for reconciliation unfold. But friends, there is, there is lost at this time, at this particular time and still lost today, oftentimes a real sense of the weight of our sin and the need for real confession and repentance. We praise God for His grace and His mercy, but no differently than what I discussed on Sunday morning. It's not cheap grace. Cheap grace says, praise God, He died for me, and you can go on sinning. But real grace understands He died for me. and I must repent of my sins and seek to do it differently moving forward. Repentance is, in fact, a 180, turning around and going the other direction. I was going here, now I'm going here. And we've got to think about this. Scripture gives us insight into this. Second Chronicles, passage of Scripture you no doubt know well, Second Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is a promise. And this is what we're called to, to humble ourselves, to pray, to seek his face, to turn. That's repentance, to turn from their wicked ways. Then I'll hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And by the way, in the verse prior to that, do you know what it says? When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. You think some of that's happening today? We've experienced it all and then some. You think this is not an opportunity right now for us in this country to put this into practice? And that's ultimately what I want us to end on here tonight. Yes, there is absolutely personal application 
For each and every one of you, you have the responsibility under the leading of the Holy Spirit to evaluate your own lives, to allow the Lord to search your heart regarding your own personal and even secret sin and and to say, Lord, I've I've attempted to cover it myself. I've attempted to hide from you. And Lord, I just want to confess it and I repent of it. I know, Lord, you know I'm hiding in the bushes and I'd like to come out now. And so for each of you individually, myself included, we've got to do that. But I also think and want to call us tonight as the church as a whole to consider what we're called to here for the sake of our nation. Let's look also here as we begin to close in Psalm 51. There's few passages, few chapters of Scripture that give us greater insight into what truly a prayer of repentance looks like. And I think we so often miss it. David here in Psalm 51 What had happened? This was the sin with Bathsheba. As far as David's life goes, there was really nothing else that topped this. This was kind of the pinnacle for David of just his his moral depravity when he had just lost it. Praise God because of a faithful individual in his life who called him to the carpet, who confronted him, which gives us insight into the importance of accountability, of truth and love. David comes to a place where he realizes what he's done and all he can do. Because remember, at this particular point for David, there's not necessarily for him a promise of reconciliation like what we have today. All that David can do is bring himself to the feet of God and throw himself at the mercy of God. And he says, have mercy upon me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness with burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then they shall offer bulls on your altar. I'm going to go back here again. You do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. When's the last time that maybe you went before God that way? Where the awareness of your own sin and the sin of, uh, of, of, of our community brought you to a place of just brokenness before the Lord. Our country needs revival. But I personally don't think that it's going to come without the church repenting first. It's time for us 
to say again to the Lord, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm hiding in the bushes and I have this stupid fig leaf on because I've convinced myself that I can do it or that, that I'm okay or that it's not that bad or whatever it is, it's for you to sort of put it in there and to confess it to the Lord, but to come to that place where we confess and, and we repent and we trust that He forgives, but, but that there is brokenness. And listen, if you've not experienced that in your own life, or if it was only that time when, when you surrendered your life to Christ, not that you need to ask for to seek salvation again. Listen, you've been forgiven, okay? The blood of Christ is potent, but there is still an opportunity for us to maintain that right relationship with God where we come to Him again and we recognize the things in our life and we say, man, Lord, how far I've come, how far I've drifted. Or, or if not for sin in your own life, look at Daniel, look at Nehemiah, look at Jeremiah, look at Zechariah, look at Esther, look at Moses, look at so many different individuals throughout history who you can argue in and of themselves were innocent, yet they were on their faces pleading with God on behalf of the people that the sin of others began to break them. They were so moved by that that they said, I'm not innocent, and I don't know about you, but for me today, as I look around at the world, I can't take a step back and say, well, I'm, I'm free and clear. And so we need to confess and to repent. We need to be willing to be a people who are on our knees. Like we're called here, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Everybody, myself included, has said at least once this year, man, 2020, what is going on? And you know, for us in the church, and I'm not faulting, I, again, I, I've said it myself, I'm not faulting any one of us in, for saying something like that necessarily, but maybe we need to stop saying that and instead go, oh, I think I know what's going on. Maybe it's that we serve a loving but righteous God who wants His people to repent and some people will say all, the, all these things that are happening, it's, it's God's judgment and He's doing it. And others will say oh, He's allowing it to happen and it's serving the same purpose. You, okay, you go ahead and decide what side of theology you want to fall on there. The end result is the same. That these things are happening, I firmly believe in our country, to wake us up. To wake us up. And say, is my church, are my people going to rise up? Are they like Daniel? They're on the edge of the river as I gave him a vision going to be willing to drop to their knees and say, Lord, forgive me and forgive us, Lord, for how far we've gone. Sinners in, sin has entered in. <clears throat> in our lives, in this world, it's there. God has made a way. And he's told us, if you come back to me, I'll work, I'll move. We're called to confess, to repent, and to be reconciled. That promise still stands true today, amen? So let's be willing to do it. Yes, next week we get to more of the good stuff. <laughs> Even though we see the consequences of sin, we see an incredibly powerful passage of Scripture that really shows us and begins to, to communicate. Even in the consequences, by the way. Even in the result of sin. I can't stand it. I can't wait till next week. I mean, look at this. Even, even when God begins to say, in verse 14, because you have done this. And so here, God the Father begins to deal with the consequences of sin. He even says within that, in between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Even 
in the immediacy of sin, God communicates, I've got a plan. I've got a Savior. And Adam and Eve, they're still dealing with now, beginning to understand the gravity of their sins, still in their nakedness. God says, I'll cover you. I'll cover you. I'll cover your nakedness. I'll cover the shame. This is the God we serve. But we have an opportunity today, church, to once again say, Lord, we're sorry. And that's good for us. We have become far too acquainted in this country with a feel-good gospel, with a desire to go to church and leave with a sense of, oh, hey, praise the Lord, I feel wonderful today. And more of an unwillingness to sometimes go, Lord, break me. Because our world needs it. Lord, break me. It's not about being depressed. It's not about shame. Shame has been dealt with. Jesus took that. But it is about recognizing, Lord, I know you want to do something. I know our world needs you. Lord, show me what you want to do in my life. How you want to use me to be a minister of reconciliation. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we, Lord, with our heads bowed, Lord, a physical sign of our humility and what I pray ultimately is truly an inward heart. Lord, we bow before you. And we recognize, Lord, that you are good. And you're gracious and you're merciful. And we praise you for that, Lord. And we thank you. Oh, Lord, how patient you are. I doubt there's any one of us in this room that doesn't look at what's going on in our world today and say, Lord, what? You're just, you're letting this continue, Lord? But yes, you are because you love us, because you care for us, because you desire that none should perish, but that all would come into everlasting life. Because you are so merciful, Lord. So, Lord, we praise you for that. But we also, Lord, collectively recognize, Lord, that that, Lord, in many respects, we have failed. Lord, the, the, the condition of our country today and the hurt that exists is, in many respects, Lord, because of an absence of the church. Because we've not done, Lord, what it is that you called us to do. And we thank you, Lord, once again, for your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness and the fact that though lord yes when we recognize our own sin and when we allow you lord to search our hearts and we see the ugliness that exists there lord there is this tendency for shame to come but we recognize lord jesus that you've taken that and so we rejoice in that and i pray for each and every person here tonight anyone lord who's dealing with a sense of shame and condemnation lord none of those things are from you remind us of that lord but yet we want to do better, Lord. We want to live, live our lives in a way that's pleasing to you, Lord. We want to bring you glory. We want to be a part of your reconciliation. We want to be those ministers of reconciliation that you've called us to be, and so help us, Lord. And maybe perhaps even tonight, for some perhaps even the first time, Lord, we repent of this, and Lord, we declare that we, we desire revival in this country. But Lord, we know it needs to begin in our own hearts first and in our homes and in our churches and that it would overflow to our communities and would grow from there. And so may we tonight, Lord, like many who have gone before us, be willing to say on behalf of our country and our brothers and sisters in Christ, on behalf of the church, Lord, we're sorry. And we ask your forgiveness. And once again, Lord, with humble hearts, Lord, we bow before you. And Lord, we, we pray here now, Lord, and we Seek your face, Lord. All we want is you. And Lord, we repent. We turn from any of our wicked ways. And Lord, we pray, hear from heaven and heal this land. And help us, Lord, to continually become 
a praying church, Lord, a church that recognizes the power of prayer and that we would commit ourselves to it and that we would daily and throughout, throughout the day, Lord, be in constant prayer, prayer without ceasing, seeking you, that you would move and work in our lives individually, that you would move and work in us corporately, Lord, and that your spirit would so move upon this country, Lord, to bring about revival once again, Lord. That's what we desire. And so, Lord, whatever it is that you need to do within us to accomplish that work, Lord, may it be done. And that can be a scary prayer, Lord, sometimes. But I pray that each of us would desire it, myself included, Lord. Lord, whatever it is that you need to do in our lives, that you would do it, that we say here tonight, Lord, I'm yours. It would all be for your glory, Lord, and that there would be many who would come to know you. And so, Lord, help us. Just help us, Lord, to understand, to really deal with and and grapple with, Lord, the the gravity of sin, the, the effects of sin in our lives. Lord, as uncomfortable as it may be sometimes, Lord, help us to truly recognize its effect, what it is that you've done throughout history to address it, Lord. Help us to understand again afresh, anew, Lord, the, the, the significance of your work, Lord Jesus, upon the cross, that we might be a people who are just absolutely sold out for you and love with you, Lord. Do that work in our hearts, Lord, I pray. Father, we love you, we praise you, we thank you, Lord. We, we, we seek to magnify your name here tonight, and I pray for each and every person, Lord, here watching online, any who will watch later on, Lord, Draw us near to you, Lord, I pray. And as a good shepherd, go before us, Lord. Lead and guide us. Direct our paths, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week. So make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you would like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.